The Republican Party has been the main political vehicle for American conservatism over the past 100 years. Throughout its history, the GOP has been marked by a tension between the intellectual elite faction and the grassroots faction that makes up the largest part of its voting base. Matt Continetti, a senior fellow at AEI, has spent his career studying the Republican Party and the American conservative movement in the 20th century. He joins me today to talk about his career in political journalism, his views on the tug of war between political factions within the Republican Party, the role of work in life and politics, and his recent book titled The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, newly released in paperback. Cottonetti, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's really great. This has been uh, too long in the in the making, uh, us getting together to talk about your book. But on the other hand, the paperback is just out. Exactly. So we get, a, we get another bite at that apple. Newly updated. That's terrific. Um, okay, so when we gather for these podcasts, I always like to ask uh, about background and who you are and uh, your Pretty well known uh, in the in conservative uh, circles, but maybe not to all of our listeners. So, why don't you just talk a little bit about um, how you became the person you are today? Sure. Uh, well, um, I grew up in the D.C. area uh, in Northern Virginia. I went to public high schools. Uh, I went to college at Columbia University. Uh, when I showed up at Columbia. In the fall of 1999, I don't think I considered myself a political conservative, but uh, Columbia helped make me a conservative, not exactly in the way uh, that I think many people become conservative on campus today. It wasn't necessarily out of response to the overwhelming left-wing culture of the campus that made me a conservative, but actually reading the great books. Columbia University is a great book school. They have something called the core curriculum, which forces every undergraduate to read the great works of Western literature and political thought. And uh, I remember uh, distinctly, probably in October um, or early November of 2000, my second year in college, reading Plato's Republic. And um, by the time I finished that book, I had this awareness uh, that I was a conservative. and everything I read subsequent to Republic, whether it was uh, Aristotle or Hobbes and Locke or uh, the Bible uh, or um, Adam Smith, Edmund Burke. By the time I was done with my second year of college, I said, okay, I'm a philosophical conservative. But I still didn't know what to do with my life. Well, uh, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt there, though. So what was the – was there a switch that flipped – uh, I mean, were you not necessarily a self-identified conservative one day, and then you read a passage in the Republic mm-hmm. that, uh, or was it a gradual accumulation of sure ideas? Well, I think um, I've always uh, been near the center of the political spectrum. So whether it was two ticks to the left or three ticks to the right, um, I still gravitate toward kind of the... Uh, moderation and I guess I went to college essentially thinking that despite his 
personal peccadilloes. Bill Clinton probably was a pretty good president overall. He made deals with the Republicans. We had a budget surplus for the mm. only time in my lifetime, for the only time in many people's lifetime. Um, country was uh, at peace. And so I think I went to college kind of um, believing in the kind of the Clinton-Blair third way idea that, um, you know, a government should pay attention to the people who work hard and play by the rules and uh, shouldn't go uh, overextend itself, but that it still had some role to play in people's lives, especially for people who um, are law-abiding and industrious and want to raise their families in stable, uh, prosperous conditions. So that was, and I was always very patriotic and uh, a defense hawk, uh, even if I were uh, two ticks to the left of the center. So that was there going in. Reading Republic really uh, caused me to realize that I shared a certain disposition with many conservatives, and that is to say I I believed in what Kant calls the crooked timber of humanity, right? Um, That uh, we're limited creatures. Uh, We are fallen creatures. Uh, We have a tendency to ill. Um, And... uh, Whereas many liberals think if you get all the social conditions right, then our inner goodness will flower. Reading public made me realize, now that's not going to happen. There's always right. something kind of bent and broken inside humanity. And so that means that you have to look toward stable social structures, tradition, um, religion, in order to guide people to have purposeful and meaningful lives. So that's kind of how I uh, I was shaped philosophically. Um and then uh, 9-11 happened when I was a junior in the college, mm-hmm. and I was a resident advisor at a dorm on the Columbia campus where I just welcomed about 38 first-year students. Uh, they were seven days into their New York journey, and 9-11 happened, and we had a front-row seat on the 13th floor of uh, John Jay dorm. And uh, when by the time uh, the, the sun set on 9-11, uh, I was uh, pretty much on board with um, uh, the George W. Bush presidency, and everything kind of flowed from there. Like I said, I, I still hadn't really realized what I wanted to do with my life, or w- rather what I was going to do with my life. I wanted to be a writer from a very young age, but um, I realized pretty quickly in college uh, I was not going to be the next Stephen King. There can only be one Stephen King. And making a living uh, from writing fiction, uh, even if I could write fiction, which I, I can't really, um, was not really a viable option. So ironically enough, my, my mother one day said that she had been watching the George Stephanopoulos show this week on ABC. And she said, you know, Matthew, you could do that. And uh, I said, you know what? I could do that. <laughs> and so I started becoming interested in political journalism. I'd long admired columnists such as Charles Krauthammer and George Will and had watched them. Uh, and then I became acquainted with a writer's work uh, named David Brooks. And I found out that David Brooks worked at the magazine called The Weekly Standard. And so I started reading The Weekly Standard after 9-11. And it, very quickly, I wanted to work there too. And so as I tell, like to tell the story, I showed up on July 7, 2003, I met David a few days later. I was so excited. I was going to 
be able to uh, learn from him, work with him. And then two weeks after that, he announced he was leaving for the New York Times. So, uh, but it worked out for me, uh, as well as for him. So all's well. That, that's terrific. Uh, you know, it's interesting talking about uh, 9-11. Um, it was also a radicalizing experience for me, uh, and but in a good way. Because I'd always been very patriotic, like, you know, I grew up in Oregon as an Eagle Scout, you know, student body president, all that stuff. And and so I was always very civic-minded and, and wanting to participate in democratic life. And then I realized, uh, 9-11, I think the main thing that it made me realize is that that is not um, something that we can take for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, that liberal democracy is really a treasure that needs to be protected and nurtured mm-hmm. uh, and for me that was the radicalizing experience of, of 9-11. Yeah I guess it also cut against the uh, liberal conceit that there's a universal brotherhood of man mm-hmm. for me you know that you experience 9-11 you see that there not only are evil men in the world but there are evil men who hate you and you remember we went through this kind of bout of self-examination after 9-11. We were like, why do they hate us? Was, I think, yeah. the headline of a Fareed Zakaria story in Newsweek. And, you know, there are many reasons given. But at the end of the day, they hate us. And so you have to do something about it. And that kind of um, moved me toward, uh, I was like I said, always a hawk, but also moved me toward kind of the prescription that George W. Bush offered mm-hmm. um, for Islamic radicalism and terrorism, which is that this ideology uh, took, life in environments where there were no possibility of human freedom. And so bringing freedom to more people could be a potential solution um, to that. And uh, obviously the jury yeah. is, uh, yeah, is that that's still out on George W. Yeah, that, that one hasn't really worked out it has, in the way that we yeah, thought it. it has, it yeah, it has yeah. and it hasn't. It's yeah. a funny thing. Um, yeah. But, uh, but that's where I was at, yeah. at that time. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks um, so much. Anybody in particular that you look at? I mean, you mentioned um, you know people like George Will and Charles Krauthammer, but uh, anybody else who had, was particularly important to your formation as an as an intellectual? Well, uh, the Weekly Standard really was my graduate school. I don't have a graduate degree, um, and so I worked at the Weekly Standard for eight and a half years. So it was really my colleagues there uh, who were the most influential. Um, on me, how I think, how I write, uh, how I uh, go about my my work, um, and so Bill Crystal obviously um, was a mentor to me long before he became a member of my family. Um, Fred Barnes uh, was also a mentor to me. Um, uh, I used to study his pieces to see how he constructed them, uh, trying to figure out okay, how can I achieve the same effects that he achieved in his writing. Uh, and then um, uh, I would say Andrew Ferguson, who was a writer at the Weekly Standard uh, while I was there, a much-loved writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a dear friend and also someone who I'm, I learn about um, life as well mm-hmm. as work uh, mm-hmm. from. And Christopher Caldwell, too, was uh, 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 someone who was uh, very important to me and kind of thinking about how journalism can be something more than who said what. You know, I used to really admire Caldwell's way of mm. bringing a whole wealth of ideas and experiences 
to uh, to whether it was a literary essay or a piece of essentially political reportage from another country. So, I always found reading his pieces quite humbling because his breadth of philosophical knowledge was so broad, and it was yeah. just like he could he can he really has a way of nesting. Yes the event that he's talking about in a much broader historical and cultural context. So. Yes, yes. So I, I definitely st- studied him and uh, his work for, for that reason, too. So it was a great uh, environment to be in uh, as a young person at the Weekly Standard. Um, uh, the Bush administration wasn't doing so well, but at the Weekly Standard, we were thriving uh, during those years and then into the first years of the Obama administration. I then left the Weekly Standard um, in 2011, because I uh, was launching my own website called the Washington Free Beacon, which I co-founded in 2012. And I was there at the Beacon until 2019 when uh, Yuval Levin said to me, uh, hey, I know, Matt, that you've been working on basically the history of the American right in your spare time, in some of your more general political writing. You've been... um, producing swaths of of what might become a book, Uh, why don't you come to AI where you can actually write the book rather than spend all your time uh, managing this enterprise called the Washington Free Beacon? So I said yes, and I joined AI in October of 2019, and um, they haven't kicked me out yet. Of course not, because you are an incredibly gifted, uh, talented thinker and writer, and it's been a pleasure you, to Brent. get to know you. You have to bit. put that on my next employee evaluation. I, I would be happy to do that. Um, uh, so that's a great transition because we're here to talk about the book. Tell us the title. So the title is "The Right: The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism," and it was published in uh, April of 2022 by Basic Books, and as we said, uh, the paperback with a new afterword uh, was just released in May of 2023. And it's a it's an amazing it's an amazing piece of work. I uh, I was uh, before I came down here, I was looking at the Amazon page, and it said magisterial, and uh, and I realized that I had used the same word in a, an article I haven't published yet, but uh, was thinking about your book um, as I was writing it. So. Uh, really highly commend it to our listeners. But it's a history of a, a political movement, and this podcast is about work and vocation. And um, so we want to – what I'm hoping we get out of this conversation is, like, some of the ideas that are related to issues of work and work culture and how conservatives think about uh, employment and um, things like labor unions, but just preliminarily, um, y- your book um, almost reads like a novel. Uh, the characters, y- your characters, pop in and out of of the uh, of the narrative. Um, who's the main character? Uh, do you think <laughs> in the American right? Well, there are a few main characters. Um, I would say if you look at my book as a whole. Um, William F. Buckley Jr. Um, is probably the central character uh, for much of it. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon are both very prominent figures. And then um, uh, in the last uh, 20 years, I mean, he first shows up in 2000, uh, and then, of course, more prominently in 2015, uh, Donald Trump. So... Uh, the book is a, a narrative that tries to connect 
intellectuals with broader political developments. It started out as just an intellectual history. And uh, there's a lot on the cutting room floor where it's just intellectuals and writers. But my, my editor and publisher said to me, you know, the truth is people need something to hang their hats on. And that's the politics. And, and so what I actually found that then in writing, I enjoyed the political history, telling that story, maybe even a little bit more than the intellectual history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we kind of toggle back and forth between the political figures and the intellectual ones. There are a few characters who kind of um, occupy both roles. And uh, here, you know, a figure like Jack Kemp, the Buffalo mm-hmm. congressman, he's, he was a congressman, but he was also like a main theorist and practitioner of supply-side economics. Patrick Jacob Buchanan, kind of the antithesis of Kemp, same thing. He was a man who started out as a political aide, then made a, a, a career and a fortune in journalism, and then kind of became a candidate in the 1990s and early thousands, 2000s again. So you can kind of see characters who who go back and forth between politics and ideas, and then there are people who just kind of stay in one camp or the other. You know, I did a, a um, interview with a guy who wrote a book on Nixon. It's called The Last Liberal Republican. Um, and I, I'm, I want you to just talk a little bit about Nixon. Like, why is he... But he wasn't really a conservative, right? I mean, um, uh, no. Yeah. Okay. So how can he be a main character in well, the history of conservatism? Uh, there are a few reasons. One is uh, Nixon wasn't necessarily a movement conservative, uh, far from it. But he was an anti-communist, mm. and anti-communism is one of the uh, foundations of the American right. Uh, so he connected to the conservative movement in that dimension. And was uh, a pivotal figure in one of the main uh, episodes in the early history of the American right in the 20th century, and that is the uh, His Chambers uh, case and controversy. Uh, but the other way Nixon connects to my story is um, you can't tell the story of the right in America without telling the story of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, uh, for better or worse, has been the main political vehicle of American conservatism over the last hundred years. And Richard Nixon is a Republican. Uh, he is one of the few people to have been on a national ticket um, four times uh, as vice president and as uh, president. I'm sorry, five times. Yeah. As twice as vice president, once in 60, and then mm-hmm. again in 68, 72. So only FDR, I think, uh, sports the same um, amount of uh, nominations. He's just a guy who wouldn't go away. I mean, he, yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting because he was wouldn't be too hard on Richard Nixon, but he was kind of a fundamentally unappealing person, um, and yet he was so durable on the political scene. It says something about tenacity yeah. and the power of tenacity to uh, make a long-lasting career. Um, there is something about Nixon, though. Uh, he appealed to certain types. You know, He definitely had, I think, his thumb on the pulse of a broad swath of America, individuals, families, a lot of men who kind of had a view of the world as a tough place and you need to have that grit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also need to have the smarts. And Nixon actually stands out, I think, among many of the characters in my book um, for his intelligence. I mean, clearly one of the most intelligent people to have occupied the Oval Office. And of course, when you look at history, you find that uh, that's, that type of cleverness and intelligence doesn't necessarily compute to 
successful presidencies. Well, or, yeah, successful leadership in general. I mean, you have to, it's not enough to be smart. Uh, you have to have some, you know, you have to, Nixon was one of these folks, and I can think of others who are currently on the stage who didn't really like people that much. And I think that to be a really good president, you have to be able to do all of those things at once, smart, ethical, and you have to have um, you have to have a basic sympathy with the people that you're trying to govern. So yeah, I mean, I, I would just say uh, uh, Nixon was. I think Nixon, our view of Nixon, for good reason, is um, viewed through the lens of Watergate, which kind of just I don't want to say distorts it, but it definitely colors our view of Nixon. Mm. If you kind of separate Watergate out, so just you just take the Nixon from '69 to '72. Uh, he was a pretty remarkable president, mm-hmm. a pretty successful president, mm-hmm. not a conservative president, mm-hmm. not a conservative president by any means. And in fact, as I say in the book, a lot of time was spent uh, dealing with conservatives in revolt even before you got to Watergate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the family assistance program, all of the I mean, he created the EPA, he created all of the, you know, sort of the finishing out the great society basically and then yeah. in his first term and then recognized so. red china yeah uh, yeah which yeah for the, the anti-communists who thought that that was the one place where they could agree with nixon uh was not a happy occasion yeah too soon to tell uh, you keep we keep coming back to that with nixon Is it, was it good was he bad it's too soon to tell we'll find out um okay so uh, but you alluded to something in there that I think is really important for this uh, for this conversation about the American right, which is this tension between its elites and its populist factions. Talk about that thread, because that's a central tension in the book that you kind of uh, draw out and explain, you know, like these two things, uh, mm-hmm. it, they're not new. This tension isn't new. Um, this is something that the Republican Party has been in, trying to integrate for a century. So right. talk about that a little sure. bit. Sure. Well, uh, I guess um, the two main groups here, uh, for shorthand purposes, are um, what you might call the intellectual elite. Um, not elite in the sense that they're better than everybody else, but simply elite in the sense that they occupy certain positions. Uh, they're journalists, they're think tank scholars, they're professors, they're publishers, they're authors. And then the political grassroots, um, that is the just the mass of voters, especially that segment of the voting population, which becomes activated by certain issues um, and responds uh, to certain initiatives from government um, and mobilizes. And uh, in the book, uh, especially beginning in the mid-20th century, I do kind of trace the relationship between these two groups, the moments where the intellectuals um, were in uh, sync with the populist grassroots, when they shared similar concerns, when they had similar aspirations, uh, but also moments where they began to diverge. And um, a lot of co- uh, attention has been paid to the recent divergences over the Trump movement and p- former President Trump. But uh, one thing I did try to do in the book was show that there had been similar moments where the um, intellectuals and the grassroots did not necessarily agree. Um, uh, The the one that stands out um, in retrospect is the Wallace movement, the George Wallace independent candidacy for president in 1968, where many grassroots conservatives were supportive 
of Wallace um, defended him, thought that he was the answer to a lot of the problems facing America at that time and the kind of the intellectual brain center of the right, National Review, its editors in, in the main were dead set against him. On what basis? Uh, well, for Wallace, it was um, particularly the fact that he was in uh, almost every respect a uh, big spending, uh, social welfare, uh, New Deal liberal. And uh, his populism, um, once it was drained of its overt racism, um, was uh, a kind of a, it was a gestural thing. Everybody was rotten. No one had guts. I was the only guy who can fight. So that sounds very familiar. It does, doesn't it? But what, so when a figure like William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review, looked at Wallace, he saw not only um, someone whose answers just were not realistic, all right, uh, were nothing more than cliche, but also someone who uh, objectively supported um, domestic policies that Buckley had spent his whole life opposing. And so this created a huge divergence uh, between the editors of the National Review and uh, much of its readership. And so I just loved going through the National Review while writing my book. And every time National Review published an essay critical of George Wallace, and sometimes they published essays supportive of him, it should be said, but in most of the essays were critical. The following issue would always contain letters to the editor uh, saying, you know, Buckley, you're just an uh, intellectual pansy. George Wallace fights, you know. Um, you guys don't know what it's like here in the real America language that is uh, very resonant mm -hmm. uh, today. So how did they fight that off? I mean, in, in our current circumstances, almost the identical uh, language gets cast upon conservatives who haven't gotten behind mm -hmm. uh, the Trump movement. You know, the, you know, he fights, he, you know, you don't get it. And you're, you know, you're an elitist and you're not, you're not um, doing what's necessary uh, in order to roll back the excesses of liberalism and uh, and much of the conservative media has really said, okay, you know, we'll get behind him. But you're saying that it, with Wallace, they said no. You know, we're not we're not going to fold to that. What what's the difference today? Why why has so much of conservative media sort of come in behind? Sure. Well, I, um, I think the main reason has to do with the um, candidates. And that is, uh, in some ways, uh, Buckley and James Burnham and Frank Meyer, uh, kind of the, the main writers at National Review, were helped by the fact that Wallace uh, was never a Republican. Mm -hmm. He was a Democrat and all his life. He ran for president in 68 as an independent. So he was never a Republican. So there was mm -hmm. never any partisan mm -hmm. concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were helped by the fact that, other than his... Uh, tough on crime stance. His policies were uh, were liberal democratic policies. He wanted to give money from one group to another, uh, which just happened to be certain groups. So what I hear you saying is that you know the ideas were really what was what were out front. That winning, you know, even if Wallace could have won, that wouldn't have been enough of a reason. For, I, I mean, well, I think it would have complicated things and, yeah, more for yeah. for for the National Review conservatives if if Wallace had been a Republican. Yeah, yeah. And if he had won. Yeah. And so 
not only wasn't he was he not a Republican, yeah. he also lost. Yeah. And then after he survived the assassination attempt um, in '73, I think uh, he was essentially. Um, removed from public life, he ended right. up being governor right. of Alabama again. Actually, right. into the 1980s, right? But um, he, he and, and totally life. recanting on all the yes. racism, yeah, and, uh, uh, all that, and stuff. just becoming a New Dealer. So, I think actually the more interesting parallel uh, would be with Nixon, hmm. because with Nixon, again, he's not a movement conservative. He does become president. He is the leader of the Republican Party. And the National Review crew was very critical of him. And I mean, beginning in 1971, they suspend support for Nixon. Mm. They find themselves in a tough situation, which I think it would be familiar to many conservatives today, that in 1972, there was no uh, alternative to Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, the preferred candidate of the National Review crowd flopped in the primaries. Uh, so it's Nixon or McGovern. Right. And so they, the National Review grudgingly had to say, well, we would prefer Nixon to McGovern. And then, of course, during Watergate, the magazine and the conservative intellectual community was divided again. National Review employed a young writer named uh, George Will at the time who wrote a column for National Review. Every column of his was critical of Vice President Agnew and Richard Nixon. Mm. And there, too, the readership and uh, all the way up to National Review's publisher, Bill Rusher, hated George Will. (laughs) and wanted Buckley to fire him. And they were really only saved when George left uh, to to write a monthly column for Newsweek. Okay, so this, uh, this division between uh, populace and um, you know, what we call, you don't want to call them elites, you want to call them sort of like what used to be mainstream republicanism, uh, that that tension is still on display, and this is where we get kind of to the employment economics uh, economic issues. But there's this sense, at least I have the sense, that you know most of the appeal to working class voters by the Republican Party is built around cultural issues, and the party hasn't quite figured out how it's going to manage kind of the economics. The, the economic policy surrounding these same voters. So my question is, like, is that sustainable, do you think? Um, do Republic, Are Republicans going to have to move on economics if they want to maintain kind of their hold on these, um, what we refer to as white working class, although many of them don't actually work? Uh, and then we've got big problems with workforce participation, but non-college educated whites uh do you think that's sustainable do you see anybody trying to figure out how to put these things together Uh, well that's a big question you know it's complicated by the fact that in america we tend to read class through educational attainment and that can lead to some confusing uh, anecdotes uh you know a big thing in 2020 of course remember were the trump boat parades and you would see on social media, typically in Florida, but throughout the country, there'd be like these little parades of boats, some big boats. Yeah. Uh, with Expensive Trump, boats. Yeah, yeah, with Trump paraphernalia. Yeah. And so, hold it, is that the white working class? Yeah. Well, the truth is, in America, thank God, uh, mm-hmm. you don't need a college degree to be pretty successful in life, mm-hmm. right? And so... Mm-hmm. That can kind of confuse what we mean um, right. when we talk through this class lens. It is, I think, 
right to look at non-college educated whites as the base of the Trump movement. Um, this was exemplified in Trump's famous comment after the 2016 Nevada primary where he said, I love the poorly educated, right? I'm not saying they're poorly educated, but they just mm -hmm. haven't achieved a certain level of um, educational attainment. So when we actually look at that population, I think you're absolutely right. Most of their concerns are cultural. They're not economic. And I think our colleague Ryan Streeter here at the American Enterprise Institute has done some good works showing that when you actually ask them what their economic views are, well, they tend to kind of be more or less what we would consider conservative Republican economic views. That is, they're entrepreneurial. They want prosperity. They want mobility. They see the cultural left as the main challenge to all of these things. So I depart from many figures on the right today who somehow think that because Trump has been successful within the Republican Party, the conservative movement needs to abandon market-based solutions or needs to embrace large-scale government intervention in the economy. I don't agree there. I do think, though, that Trump's success within the Republican Party has moved Republican politicians um, off what you might call libertarian purism. So 10 years ago, if you talked to a Republican, they would tell you, well, we need to reform Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Uh, they don't say that anymore. Um, well, they did pass a bill. Was, that was part of the House's plan, wasn't it, to reform uh, entitlement programs, the, the initial bill that they passed. Uh, I think it had did, it? did have entitlement cuts in it, yeah, I think. The debt ceiling bill? No, the the initial, uh, what did they call it? This was, it, Biden wouldn't negotiate with them until they passed a plan. So they passed a oh, plan. The budget. The, bu the, the budget um, legislation, which included, I think, reform That's to entitlements. Well, they certainly didn't brag about it. No, they did didn't. They? Um, no, and it wasn't in what they ultimately yeah, passed. Um, so. they're, they're not that interested in um, entitlement yeah. reform, not to the degree that they were. Uh, 10 years ago. Um, if you ask about um, certain policies like uh, parental leave, job training, um, I think there too Republicans have become more supportive of federal role in ways that they wouldn't have been mm. uh, 10 years ago. Free mm. trade, of course, mm -hmm. the most glaring example. There's been really no movement on the trade uh, space uh, since Trump's um, primary run. Um, so uh, there are certain questions where they've kind of moved away from um, the economics of uh, Milton Friedman and Friedrich mm -hmm. Hayek. Um, but I still think that they are um, pro-enterprise, pro-small business, right? So they'll critique woke corporations, but they're definitely for allowing on, uh, small businesses to flourish um, they continue, I think, uh, in the main, to be very skeptical of the labor movement, especially the public employees labor, uh, part of the labor movement. Um, and so uh, there's a mismatch, I think, between the way that some intellectuals in, in D.C. talk about the Republican voting base and the way in which that base actually expresses its views when you ask them in public opinion surveys. It seems rather, at the moment, kind of policy-free. Uh, I mean, I, I do think that there are people like Orrin Cass and others who are trying to build, you know, some sort of a 
intellectual infrastructure around a, an economic uh, platform for conservatives to get behind. But I, I think they're going to have a very hard time distinguishing themselves from basically what Biden is doing, um, which is, you know, he's about the same as Trump on trade. Uh, he uh, is, a, you know, reshoring uh, manufacturing, industrial policy. I mean, that that all fits quite comfortably in uh, uh, under the Biden administration umbrella. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, um, you know, this is where it, Republicans don't want to go there. I'm just wondering if they're going to end up having to go there in order to keep this coalition together or are the I mean and, and what I'm asking for is kind of your perspective on whether the cultural messages alone are sufficient to sort of sustain the coalition yeah I think they are I think it's almost entirely cultural the economic subjects you bring up and uh, think about it as uh, to the degree that Republicans supported say the chips act they did so on national security grounds right um, mainly the way that Republicans are um, supportive of industrial policy today is th uh, by referencing the U.S.-China competition, right? So they're, they're not saying that we need to create a national champion audio company. They're saying we need to decouple strategically from China, or now the new word is de-risk, right? That's... Mm -hmm. um, we can still use decouple, right? So going after Chinese tech, right? Um, they want us to be sufficient, self-sufficient in the national security crisis by revitalizing our defense industrial base. In reality, that's not too large a departure from the ways that national security hawks have thought about these issues in the past. Um, so again, I think it's just a matter of trying to meet the voters where they are, um, their uh, Republicans are uh, deeply skeptical of uh, China. Uh, they do view China as a threat, as an adversary, and I, I think China behaves that way, so <laughs> they're right to do so. <laughs> and some of these concerns about um, reshoring uh, and, and dependence are related to that China relationship. It's not necessarily a, an embrace of industrial policy for industrial policy's sake, which I think some intellectuals on this latest new right do support. Right. right? And they be, they're becoming frustrated with the Republican Party and with Republican voters because, in fact, just due to inertia and due to kind of the stolidity of people who don't spend their entire days thinking about politics... Um, Republicans remain kind of resistant to uh, central economic planning, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, industrial policy in its purest form is. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think that it is there's something very it's almost as visceral as the cultural side on on the economic side of just that skepticism. Well, about, and I would say, too, you know, Brent, yeah. the main a wake up call for Republicans who thought you they could have their cake and eat it, too, was the announcement earlier this year by uh, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo that the recipients of CHIPS money would have to obey all of these strings that are attached now in terms of this social pri social planning priorities mm -hmm. of the Biden administration. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're a conservative Republican who maybe f voted for CHIPS on national security grounds, one, you feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. And two, if you're a Republican who didn't vote for CHIPS, 
and many of them didn't, mm -hmm. because they felt it was industrial policy, they can sit back and say, I told you so. Yeah, yeah. No, I. that was, I think that's mainly around like the, well, I, I suppose it has a bunch of environmental um, strings attached to it, environmental policy and social justice, but seemed like that was mostly around the child care issue. Yeah, like, that er, yeah, that was the, you know, you've got to, you have to, if you're going to get one of these grants, you're going to build a plant, then you've got to show us how you're going to provide child care for the, the people who are working in that plant, you know. And um, uh, which is really, uh, you know, you look at how Americans think and feel about, say, just the child care issue. We've done some survey work on this with Dan Cox and and it's remarkable just how supportive Americans are of spending in that area. So where, I mean, it's, I think that uh, Republicans may be out of alignment with their own voters on that question. It's like you ask somebody, do you want the federal government to spend more on child care? They're going to say, yeah, I want you to do that because right. it's really hard and it's really well, then expensive. Then you ask them, do you want to pay for it through your taxes? Well, nobody, somebody else say, can no, pay. No, I don't want to yeah, do that. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. so a, a bucket of contradictions as usual. Um, let's talk about uh, a little bit uh, moving away from the economics in, back into the culture side. Um, can you just dilate for a few minutes or a minute on um, on the role that religion plays in the conservative movement. Uh, oh, I think and, it plays a very huge role. Uh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a lot of different strands in there. You have evangelicals. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. um, something that has become more prominent, you know, sort of the Pentecostal movement, which has gotten so much attention over mm -hmm. the last five years or so. Catholics. Um, many of the neocons were Jewish, uh, mm -hmm. who you know provided a lot of the intellectual firepower behind conservatism. So just talk about, you know, where are the where do these things meet? Where do they depart from one another? Um, and what and what general in general? How has religion played in the story of the right? Well, I think um, you know if you start at the beginning of my story, the 1920s, you have the sense of. Um, the Republican Party is uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, typically mainline Protestant. Um, the uh, but that was a time when the mainline really represented the establishment, the establishment, yes, yeah. the establishment, and like the the people in the pews right. that that really made up the right. The, the, the evangelicals were the, the rustics who supported William Jennings Bryan. Right. In the South. And they just and they went to Democrats. the Presbyterian Church or they went to the Methodist Church. Those are the mainline institutions mm -hmm. um, that no longer represent those people. So. That's right. And so I think there's been a shift in the uh, composition, the religious composition of the Republican Party from those mainline denominations to, uh, ca to two formerly Democratic constituencies, Catholics and evangelical Protestants. Southern Evangelical Protestants in particular. Mm -hmm. And so the story of the 20th century is mainly the movement of those two groups out of the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and into mm -hmm. the Republican one with mm -hmm. uh, just tremendous consequences mm -hmm. for each of the parties. Um, because in twenty in the 20s, there was a lot of antagonism, right? With Huge. Yeah. Not just the you know, sort of the Southern Baptists, um, but between Republicans and or the mainline uh, and uh, 
Protestants and Catholics. There was a lot of tension between. Uh, amazing. I, I have in my book, I think, the anecdote that in one of the major Klan parades in Washington, D.C. in the 1920s, there is a float supporting a Federal Department of Education. The purpose of the Federal Department of Education, as originally conceived, was to clamp down on Catholic education. Right. The Catholic and, the, and the states were taking up the Blaine Amendments yep. and all of that uh, to... So that's not the case today, yeah. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> and the Republican Party and conservative movement are champions of religious liberty. Um, I'll just talk about the Catholics for a second, because that movement, I think, is very fa fascinating to me. Um, and it has to do, I think, with the role of communism. Hmm. And um, William F. Buckley Jr., again, we've mentioned him before, uh, he he was he was Catholic. He was a Southerner who was Catholic. Um, one of the many kind of paradoxes of Buckley. But uh, his father's Catholicism, um, which he imbued, really was a Catholicism against revolt, against especially uh, communist revolution um, and the anarchy and terror that always came with it. And so those attitudes then were projected onto the world when the Soviet Union emerged from the Second World War as the major superpower and competitor to the United States, especially because for so many American Catholics could point to still living relatives living in the captive nations of Eastern Europe under Soviet dominion. And so I think that anti-communism and then the, the idea that the Republican Party was the tougher party on communism uh, brought in many Catholics uh, into the conservative fold and into the, eventually into Republican ranks. Now, now basically Catholics uh, split their vote between the two parties, but if you actually burrow down into the data and see you know, observant Catholics, mm -hmm. they, they're overwhelmingly Republican. On the evangelicals, that transition um, is a little bit, you know, I, I mean, Buckley and that kind of anti-Catholic Catholicism, anti communist Catholicism was represented by, say, Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. So he was present even in their 50s. You could see it happening. The evangelical Protestants, of course, is much more recent of the last 50 years. And it has to do with um, basically the actions undertaken by the federal government in the 1970s against uh, religious schools um, and the tax status of religious schools. It has to do with the... Um, uh, women's movement, the gay rights movement coming out of that era. And preeminently abortion. And then abortion. It's interesting, though, of course, you know, um, many of the evangelicals were kind of ambivalent or split on the right. abortion question when Roe v. Wade happened in 1973. It was really the work of another character in my book, uh, Francis Schaeffer, mm -hmm. uh, the, um, who helped unify the evangelical community with the Catholics, Catholics sure. on the issue of, yeah. of life in the 1970s going into the 80s. Um, and there you have, you know, the main institution um, in 79, 80 was the moral majority and which uh, really helped to power uh, Reagan's landslide that year. So those are the two main groups that kind of shifted out of the Democratic Party, mainly out of response to what they took to be the Democratic political elites um, kind of antagonism toward their traditional cultural and religious values. I mean, again, 68, you can kind of see all the fights at the Chicago Convention, um, the student rebellion, the, the riots. For many Catholics who still 
if they weren't living in the cities at the time in the 60s, they, they were just out of the cities, right? They were just beginning their migration to the suburbs. And they were sort of the backbone of, you know, firemen and police. Yeah, and, right. And even yeah. if they lived in the suburbs, yeah. they still had jobs in the cities, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's a great point. They took that all personally. Yeah. And, and then they became the Reagan Democrats in 1980. And it, for the most part, remained remain Republicans it's, today. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I spent... Uh, let's see, four year, five years working on the um, faith-based and community initiative uh, in the Bush administration. Um, and you talk a little bit about that, about the compassionate conservatism mm -hmm. uh, uh, effort that Bush undertook with the aid of Mike Gerson and others who kind of helped him think about that. What did you make of it as a, how, how does it fit into this um to this history was it uh was it a tissue reject do you think um uh or was there did it uh, and in terms of like we we tried to transplant something into republicanism that mm -hmm. that wasn't really native to it or was it or is it there still there um well there's a few things there um uh, the first is uh, uh the words uh, overtaken by events yeah. Um, you know, oh, I remember. Bush yeah. enters the <laughs> White House, and he's going to be the compassionate conservative yeah. president. He's going to focus on education reform, on immigration reform, on the faith-based initiative. His first major speech to the country, primetime address, is over his stem cell policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then less than a month after that speech, we're hit by the terrorists on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the compassionate conservatism just simply fell uh, to the back of the line. Um, with the exception of the PEPFAR program, which mm -hmm. continues to be one of the most successful programs the Bush administration ever launched, and which was part of compassionate conservatism. So that's one thing. The second thing is, um, and there's been some great writing about this too, the faith-based initiative legislation was blocked in the United States Senate. And once it was blocked in the United States Senate, um, there was really no way that you could get the full impact of what was envisioned what had been talked about by figures like Marvin Olasky and Myron Magnet, John DeUlio, a friend of mine who was heading that office in the White House, he could only do so much within the confines of the White House. Was it uh, were the ideas of compassionate conservatism the uh, foreign to the conservative movement in the Republican Party? They did require a larger role for government than uh, I'd say the conservative movement was comfortable with. On the other hand. They're very much in line with certain currents in religious thought um, and certain sentiments of religious voters at that time. The idea that you did have to marshal the armies of compassion, that um, it was faith-based institutions, community institutions that could provide social services in a much better, more effective, more personal way than the government ever could. Um, there's been a change in the religious communities that 23 years ago supported compassionate conservatism and today we just look uh, uh, at it as kind of a bizarre liberal fancy. I think that can't be discounted as well. A yeah. lot of the thought, the intellectual background that went into it um, has just not been transmitted to the current religious leadership. Mm. And if you mean look at Protestantism today, it's a, um, evangelical Protestantism today is a different creature than it was when George W., who is a Bible-believing Christian, uh, was, pres was president and uh, whose faith was a big part of his life 
and whose faith informed those those initiatives uh, at the, in the early um, Bush years. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I uh, when you were talking about how you know people would look at it as kind of a liberal fantasy, it reminded me actually of working on it in the Bush administration where there was this great tension between among the political appointees mm-hmm. over what this thing was and what we were supposed to do with it because you know on one side it was you know this is just you know liberalism in a tuxedo you know kind of like this isn't part of what conservatism means which is smaller government and you know getting government out of the way and so on of course I have a lot of sympathy for getting government out of the way the question was this money is going to be spent so how are we going to spend you know we're going to spend it in ways that are actually can reach down to those grassroots organizations or are we just going to keep funding the liberal infrastructure that's been in place for 35 40 years so um so uh, to wrap this up um you know matt continetti goes to um you know uh nice Italian boy who grows up in the D.C. area and he goes off to Columbia and um, I'm sure you face this question because everybody uh, I know who's gone off to study anything that hasn't been of a, a technical nature uh, gets asked this question is what do you, like the, the drunk uncle question at Thanksgiving what are you going to do with that when you were when you were in college uh-huh. and you're here you were in this great books program and you're thinking about becoming a journalist um so I, I suspect that you faced questions like that when you were younger. What's your advice to young people, um, who I hope there are some listening to this podcast, uh, who are trying to make vocational choices um, for themselves? Um, how do they? How did you? How did you weather that? How did you navigate uh, a world that said, you know, ninety-eight percent of American parents want their kids to major in engineering? because it sounds like it's going to be safe and economically productive for right. their kids. So, yeah. But just react Based to that. on my math scores, that was never really an uh, yeah. option. Um, <laughs> I would say, actually, your vocation chooses you, um, mm. or at least it did me. I can't really think of a time when I didn't want to be a writer. And um, I think the way to think about vocation is something that you would do anyway if you mm. weren't paid. Right. Now, that might be hard for someone who's a marketing major, you know, uh, listening to this. They might say, well, hold it. Would I really be marketing? Yeah. But you might be wanting to be with people. Mm -hmm. You might want to be communicating. You might want to be thinking of new ideas and new uh, slogans, you know, or uh, ways to reach out people, uh, to people. That's actually your vocation. I would think about it that way. I, I could not not write. Yeah. I would have to. Now, it just so happens I do it for pay, you know, and, uh, but sometimes I don't do it for pay. Uh, so those, I feel guilty afterward. I really should make people pay. <laughs> um, so I would think about it this way, which is what is it, first, what is it you can't help doing? That probably is going to direct you toward what your vocation is going to be. And it doesn't have to be when you, I can't help painting well not everybody paints but there's going to be something unique to you that you just can't help doing Um, and then the second thing would be um, what do you know or have an interest in that no one else does that takes Mm -hmm. a little bit longer that might Mm -hmm. follow actually your recognition of what your vocation is but in the case of this book for example I just uh, have uh, a 
a habit of reading old journalism, um, partly from when I was starting out and I wanted to find models for my work, but then just because I really enjoy it. Um, and then that communicated to me, that experience, that sensation communicated to me that I like history. And I always have loved history, but so that meant too that I had, I was going to write this book one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's a way of thinking about your value added, you know, right. for me, it's reading old journalism, but for others, it might be a specialization. It might be a language. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be some, something that interests them, uh, or obsesses them, right. uh, in a way that it doesn't to other people. And that can yeah. be a real advantage in the workplace. That's a great, a great place to wind up. Um, follow your intrinsic interests, uh, and and the rest of it will take care of itself. I like to think so. It yeah. it did in my case. Yeah. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.